Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as Puerto Rico struggles under another natural disaster, we're seeing some recognition of what's unnatural about the conditions the island faces that determine its ability to protect its people. We're even getting some critical mumblings about finance bros, people from the states who go to the island to exploit tax laws designed to reward them wildly. New York Magazine described a wave of mostly white mainlanders that, quote, has moved to Puerto Rico buying real estate and being accused of pushing out locals who pay their full tax burden, close quote. Got to get that passive voice in there. But of course, it isn't just that these tax giveaways favoring non-Puerto Ricans are gross and unfair. You have to acknowledge in the same breath that money going to them is money not going to Puerto Rico's energy systems, schools, hospitals, housing. We'll talk about the harms inflicted on Puerto Rico that have nothing to do with hurricanes with Julio Lopez Verona co-chief of campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. Also on the show, Customs and Border Protection released findings from an internal investigation a few months back, declaring that no horse-riding Border Patrol agents actually hit any Haitian asylum seekers with their reins as they chased them down on the southern border last fall. That finding is disputed, but consider the premise that people would need to create tales of horror about the treatment of Haitians at Del Rio, where people were shackled, left in cold cells, denied medicine, and separated from children as young as a few days old. Corporate media subtly underscore that skepticism. AP ran an article at the time telling readers that the appalling images from Del Rio shocked everyone. Quote, But to many Haitians and black Americans, they're merely confirmation of a deeply held belief. U.S. immigration policies, they say, are and have long been anti-black. The Border Patrol's treatment of Haitian migrants, they say, is just the latest in a long history of discriminatory U.S. policies and of indignities faced by black people, sparking new anger among Haitian Americans, black immigrant advocates, and civil rights leaders. Close quote. Understand, then, the racism in U.S. immigration policy is a mere belief held by black people, and only they are upset about it. And this dismissive, divisive view is good, sympathetic reporting. We'll get another grounded perspective from Gerlin Joseph, founder and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. That's coming right up. You are listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Puerto Rico is in dire need of fuel for generators as they deal with the devastation of Hurricane Fiona. But a ship carrying fuel has been idling offshore, unable to enter a port because it's Puerto Rico, where the Jones Act, requiring that all goods be brought in on a U.S.-built ship owned and crewed by U.S. citizens and flying the U.S. flag, makes critical goods more expensive— or in this case, out of reach. 
the White House has just announced it will temporarily waive the Jones Act. Investment firms in mainland states can't act as advisors to the government in the issue of bonds, while at the same time marketing those bonds to investors, but they can in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, you can get tax breaks, including zero income tax on capital gains. Unless, that is, you were born on the island, only non-Puerto Ricans qualify. Puerto Ricans themselves are ineligible for supplemental security income, even though they pay payroll taxes. All of which is to suggest that the story of Puerto Rico's ability to prepare for, withstand, and recover from natural disasters starts long before the storm. We're joined now by Julio Lopez Verona, co-chief of campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. He joins us by phone from San Juan. Welcome back to Counterspin, Julio Lopez Verona. Thank you for having me. Well, there are a number of ways you could illustrate the tangle of predatory policy and political disempowerment and just exploitation that are the ongoing crisis for Puerto Rico before and after any natural disasters. But I know that you worked recently looking at how that all plays out in one very important sector, pharmaceuticals. What did that research show about how things work in Puerto Rico? We have been uh, interested in looking at how the, like the colonial economy of Puerto Rico plays out in different sectors for a while. We've been specifically interested in thinking about how pharmaceutical companies are, in many ways, doing what they said they would do with the billions of dollars that we give them every year through tax exemptions. This is part of a decades-old practice to give billions of dollars of tax exemptions to pharma, which has phased out in many cases because of changes in our economy, but still remains. And we were interested in thinking through how these, uh, how these tax exemptions were actually helping communities uh, have a good life, how they were allowing people uh, to, to actually have a dignified salary and all those things. And when we dug in, uh, we started talking to workers in the security and uh, cleaning uh, space. Uh, And in those cases, we found uh, thousands of workers that in many cases were subcontracted by pharma, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies and were getting paid minimum wage, um, were were had um, the baseline of benefits that Puerto Ricans get uh, and it was really interesting for us because uh, the pharmaceutical company for a long time had been sold as a, what I say, parallel to the American dream, the, the dream, the Puerto Rican dream. This is how you like go get out of poverty. This is how you have a family. But we find these thousands of workers that are actually not doing that. And it brings about the question on what is the economy and why are we providing these tax extensions? when they are not benefiting Puerto Ricans, and, you know, more importantly, who are they benefiting? Um, why are we continuing to do this, and why are we not being able to take advantage of the billions of dollars that could be put for our economy? And more in moments like this one, where we have hurricanes happening, and where we have people struggling with issues with re- relocation, issues with droughts and flooding. You know, in the case of hurricanes, 
Fiona specifically, we have workers that we've been talking to that lost their homes while working on these pharma companies that say that they've been the first ones to kind of step up after other hurricanes. So, so we have a really interesting moment where pharma says it's ready, but we have thousands of thousands of workers that are struggling in a moment of crisis. Well, in some ways, it sounds very familiar to the kind of promises that companies make uh, here on the mainland as well, that, you know, give us these tax breaks and we'll create all these good jobs that will lift people out of poverty. And there's often very little follow-up to see whether they're actually creating that many jobs to begin with before you even get to whether their wages are actually really lifting people out of poverty. Yeah, we often say that Puerto Rico has become a microcosm for the worst kind of experiments on capitalist ideas. We've seen those ideas be translated into extreme privatization, like what's happening right now with the electrical grid, which still is not able to provide electricity to all Puerto Rican families like 12 or 13 days after Hurricane Fiona. We've seen the, the impact of what you were referring a little bit earlier around tax exemptions for the rich, you know, and this idea of trickle-down economics, like the rich come and everybody's better. And then we've seen what's happening with all of these corporations. Pharma is a great example, but we also know that Puerto Rico has the highest density of Walmarts and Walgreens, and those companies are also displacing Puerto Rican local companies. So all of the things that neoliberalism has preached for a long time that are the way in which you make capitalism flourish are happening in Puerto Rico. And in many ways, the agenda is one that has been accomplished successfully. It's really good if you have money. It's really, really bad if you're a person that doesn't have money and isn't able to take advantage of all the programs that benefit the wealthy. And isn't able to jet away to your second home when a hurricane comes. Well, well, part of the um, misery yet again for Puerto Ricans, you know, which was a CNN, part of a CNN headline, part of that narrative is Puerto Ricans are in such a perennial hole because they can't pay off their debt. Now, we can't do the long version of this necessarily, but I just don't know that you could get into an elite media conversation by explaining that, you know, in reality, Puerto Rico has paid any debt that it rightfully owed long ago. Yeah. I would even say, even if we simplify very much, there is a historical reason why Puerto Rico was in its debt crisis, and it is at the center of it because of colonialism. Puerto Ricans, like Puerto Rico's economy, has, has been controlled by the U.S since the U.S. came to Puerto Rico. If you look at the change in the way in which we use, like we went from um, our own currency to uh, U.S. currency, that benefited people from the U.S. When we see the changes that happened when it came to the crops that were used in the 20s. And then when we look at pharma and the companies that came or the military invasions, there are many examples of how Puerto Rican economy has been driven by the interests of the U.S. So, even if we argue that the final result of this was that there was a debt crisis that was made in Puerto Rico, that would not tell the whole story. And even if you told that story, you should also account for the fact that this debt in many cases was illegal. This debt in many cases, as you said, was already paid. 
and that the people that are currently negotiating that debt are the same people that in some cases made money out of it. So it's a very, very complex situation that at the end has to do with colonialism, economic control of Puerto Rico's future, and greed, greed in the worst way possible. Greed when it comes to hedge funds that decided to come to Puerto Rico and knowing that Puerto Rico would default and extract as much debt as they could, and greed when it came to the people that were running Puerto Rico and decided that they wanted to move forward with an agenda that at the end of the day was extremely good for those that had money, which is kind of a theme in this conversation, Mm -hmm. and really, really dire for people that live here and in some cases have been driven out of Puerto Rico because of those economic conditions. Well, finally, when we've spoken before, it seems we always come around to talking about dignity, to talking about leading with the dignity of human beings in in the policies that we make. And I just wanted to to add, you know, there is, when you learn about what's happening in Puerto Rico, you see that there's, it's beyond pushback to each new indignity. There is long-term organizing and growing happening that provides a way to at least look forward. Isn't that true? Yeah, uh, five years ago when Hurricane Maria happened, everybody talked about Puerto Rico se levanta or Puerto Rico rises up. This time, after Hurricane Fiona, people are talking about solo el pueblo salva el pueblo. So only the people save the people. People understand that what's happening in Puerto Rico is wrong. People understand that we cannot trust the government anymore and that we need to organize and support each other. We've also been gotten to the point where resiliency is not a good word. Hmm. Resiliency is actually a bad word. What Puerto Ricans want and deserve is respect. They deserve a voice in the decisions that are made about their economy and their future. And they deserve, in many cases, reparations. They deserve that the people that have put us in this position step up and actually allow us to have the resources we need so that we can rebuild ourselves without the oversight of of anybody, but with the power of the people at the center of the conversation and the action taken. We've been speaking with Julio Lopez Verona, co-chief of campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. They're online at populardemocracy.org. Julio Lopez Verona, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. Listeners will remember the pictures, U.S. Border Patrol agents on horseback wielding reins like whips as they corralled and captured Haitian asylum seekers along the Rio Grande. The appalling images might have served as a symbol of the ill treatment of Haitians escaping violence and desperation. Instead, elite media made them a stand-in so that when the report came that, despite appearances, the Border Patrol didn't actually whip anyone, one felt that was supposed to sweep away all of the concerns together. Well, there are serious problems with that report, but we should also ask why we saw controversy about photographs foregrounded over the story of Haitians' horrific treatment at the hands of U.S. border officials, treatment that a new amnesty report, echoing others, describes as amounting to race-based torture, and why were media so quick to look away? 
The question is as vital a year on as reporters talk about other asylum seekers as political pawns and victims, but continue their relative disinterest in Haitians, tacitly sanctioning the harms of U.S. policy. Joining us now to talk about this is Gerlin Joseph. She is founder and executive director of Haitian Bridge Alliance. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Gerlin Joseph. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Chris Magnus announcing the results of the agency's internal investigation in July said, quote, not everyone's going to like all the findings, but the investigation was comprehensive and fair, close quote. He said that because the investigation said that there was no evidence that agents on horseback hit anybody with their reins. So it's as if he's saying, I know you wanted there to be real cruelty here, but there wasn't, so ha. But beyond that deflecting message that some people just want to believe in cruelty— The problems with the CPB's report about what happened in Del Rio, those problems are deep, aren't they? Absolutely. First of all, what they did with the report is that they took the lives of over 15,000 Haitians and and people of African descent and Black asylum seekers, and they put that into a 30-minute period where that picture was captured. But the reality is, if that picture wasn't captured, they would have told us this never happened at all. But we all saw the pictures, and we understood the reality under the bridge. And if you zoom into the picture, you will see the CBP officer on horseback, his hands holding and pulling the Haitian man by his shirt, and this man was only carrying food to his wife and child. So the the report is telling us this didn't happen, but all you have to do is zoom into the picture, and you will see the intent, and you will see the fear, you will see the power that this officer had upon the person of this asylum seeker. Now the report will tell you that they looked into it and they found that he did not whip the gentleman. But you can clearly see his motion to whip him. And you can see the fear even in the face of the horse that almost trampled this man who was carrying nothing but food. In addition to that, the report failed to interview or speak to any of the people who were under the bridge, any of the witnesses and any of those who were actually experiencing the abuse. We made available to them Haitian migrants who were under the bridge. We made available to them advocates on behalf of the people we saw in that picture. And the reality that the world finally witnessed under the bridge, none of them were interviewed, contacted, or didn't even reach out to them. In addition to that, they still had 15,000 people in their custody, yet they didn't even care to speak to any one of them 
about the treatment they received, the abuse that we witnessed. Nothing. Well, the idea of producing a report about what happened at Del Rio without talking to any of the asylum seekers, I think a lot of folks would find absurd on its face. And I would just note that in addition to the fear and the and the obvious violence that one can see in the picture, my understanding is that folks who were there say that there was, in fact, if this is what we're going to talk about, in fact, there was actual use of reins as whips, that that is something that actually happened, which perhaps we would know about if the report had interviewed any actual asylum seekers. Absolutely. If they cared enough to find the truth, if they cared enough to have a report that reflected the reality of the people who who were subject to that abuse, they would have been able to identify what exactly happened. But they did not care enough to look or interview. They did not care to get the truth. What they cared about is how do we tell the American people, the American public, how do we tell the world that what you saw never happened? Mm-hmm. Now, is the supposed rationale for turning away Haitian asylum seekers, is it continuing to be Title 42, this supposed public health policy? Is that the reason that the administration is still giving for turning away Haitians? Yes. Yeah, so at this present moment, the border is completely closed mm-hmm. due to Title 42. There is no way for people to have access. Nobody can just go to a port of entry and present themselves to ask for access to asylum. As we are speaking right now, the border is completely closed due to Title 42, which is a health code that was put in place by the previous administration under President Trump that was created by Stephen Miller as a way to completely take away any avenue for people seeking safety, people seeking protection, people seeking asylum to have access to due process at the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, listeners will have been hearing about Republican governors flying people around and, and about. In that story, asylum seekers' treatment is portrayed as obviously political. But Del Rio was just sort of official policy, if regrettably handled. You know, we're not supposed to think about there being politics there or those people being pawns or victims in the same way somehow. Actually, you know, it it is because, first of all, a lot of the people received false information that if they had gone to the Rio, they would be giving access to protection. Mm -hmm. So 15,000 people did not just show up overnight by themselves. Now, the source of that information or the source of that misinformation must be investigated. And that is another thing we also ask for the government to investigate the source of the misinformation that then guided people to where they were under the bridge. So when I say that, I see it also that could have been a political plot. We don't know how that happened. However, We saw the moment the people who were there were black, we answered with violence. Now, is it political? I'll say yes, because our system is rooted in anti-black racism. 
is rooted in white supremacy. So therefore, the moment the black people showed up, we responded with violence and we deported them, including pregnant women and infants as young as just a couple of days old. And it's just not possible to consider that treatment, that reception of Haitian asylum seekers out of context with the reception that we've seen given to other people. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible not to see that context. Absolutely. I mean, the, the reality is, and, and one example, clear example, is how we as a country were quick to put a system together to respond and receive people fleeing uh, Ukraine, right, with compassion and respect and love and dignity. And what we are saying is that same system that was put together overnight to be able to receive 26,000 Ukrainians in less than two months should not be the exception to the rule, should be the norm. It should be that while Haiti is in the middle of what the United States government is calling on the verge of a civil war, putting Haiti on a high risk, right, Mm -hmm. saying that it is very close to a war zone, we still deported 26,000 Haitians to Haiti in the middle of the crisis at the same time received 26,000 Ukrainians. So what we are saying is that the same way we are able to welcome the Ukrainians in crisis with compassion, love, dignity, humanity, it should be provided to people, no matter where they are from, their ethnicity, the country of origin, definitely should not matter whether they are black or white. Well, we're going to end on that note. We've been speaking with Gerlin Joseph, founder and executive director at Haitian Bridge Alliance. Gerlin Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having us. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter, Extra, or to show support for the show, if you are so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.